Hello, and welcome to the first installment of Crosswinds, a podcast series produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and it's my good fortune to serve as host of this series of conversations. Each installment will involve a nationally prominent thought leader from the world of healthcare, often friends, always remarkable, and never exactly what you expect. One of the hallmarks of the Research Institute is that we tend to challenge conventional thinking. We're at our best when we're asking questions that others aren't asking. We tend to pick things up and turn them over in our hands and look at them from different angles. And we hope to do the same thing with these podcasts, to bring you insights from the brightest people in healthcare, thinking about things from different angles and having fun along the way. If we're doing it right, it'll feel like listening to two old friends sitting in comfortable chairs and talking. And that brings us to today's guest. It'd be difficult for me to find a better old friend to join in this first conversation. David Entwistle is the president and CEO of Stanford Healthcare, where he's been since 2016. Before Stanford, David was the CEO at the University of Utah, and prior to that, was the chief operating officer at the University of Wisconsin. David has an undergraduate degree from Brigham Young and a master's degree from Arizona State, and I'm very fortunate to call him a great, good friend. David, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Tom, it's great to be with you. I have to say, in these uh, tumultuous times and all the things that we're going through, uh, having a conversation with an old friend is a great opportunity, and I look forward to it today and just having a discussion about some of the things that are going on in our industry right now. Well, we're thrilled to have you, and we couldn't have chosen a, a, a better friend. Um, Tom, the only thing is I wish you were here with me in Palo Alto in this warm weather. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'm on my way. I've, I, the car is, is warming up and I'm on my way. <laughs> uh, Why don't we start with a question that's not related uh, to the pandemic? Um, Stanford it was the recipient of the 2020 Gartner Ion Innovation Award. And I wonder if you could share with us a few examples of technological advances in your new hospital that are palpably changing the patient's experience at Stanford. You know, I appreciate you raising that. You know, it's interesting because literally a year ago, uh, from where we are right now, we were opening the new hospital. And with all the fanfare, all of the great conversations, all the great events uh, that recognize all the achievements uh, that it took us 12 years to build and design and everything that went into that. And so it's a little surreal to be on this end of it a, a year later and having now been able to use that facility to actually get us through the pandemic. You know, let me start with probably the technology first. That was probably one of the most exciting things. And as I shared uh, throughout the opening events, that this is the most technologically sophisticated hospital in the world. And you think about it, that's a pretty bold statement, given the peers that I have around the country. But as I literally had the opportunity to go through, meet with the architects, meet with our tech people, you pretty quickly assess that this is uh, a great facility that had been thought through in the terms of the way that it was being designed. Let me first off say, you know, one of the things that was exciting about it is just the flexibility of being able to adapt the building as technology changed. 
really changes. And as we know, that's happening on a daily basis. Uh, you know, it used to be that, you know, you'd wait to buy a computer because you knew the next 486 or something with higher RAM or higher speed would come out. But literally today, we see that on a constant basis. We literally, in this hospital, built, as we put it, the size of the pipe to be able to adapt to the future so that you could have 10,000 devices streaming at 4K video if that's what folks chose to do because we knew that the devices that we use, the uh, RFID, the perspectives that we had with our workstations on wheels would all require that kind of technology and bandwidth. So if you look at that in thinking about the foundation of that, really the technology platform can change. You know, we did innovative work with Hillrom to develop a bed that actually allowed us to be able to do some creative things with our own electronic medical record and our um, uh, labeled product or EMR for my health to be able to have a real-time discussion with a patient on an e-consult in the bed uh, while they're still in the hospital without the physicians having to do that or to get the training, education, or other materials. There were just the kind of technologies, whether it's the platforms who are getting the doses to the patient and the pharmaceutical and the robots that actually pick and fill and make sure the accuracy is there. All of these things went into how do we create uh, what would be a flexible hospital as we move forward. And I'll say, you know, to the 99 ICU beds, to the negative pressure fills that helped us get through and is helping us today even get through that pandemic, all of that technology went into build Uh, what was truly a remarkable uh, cadre into the facility. But I will add, and I think uh, the folks uh, that will hear this uh, podcast will know that it really is about the people. So at the end of the day, it's the creativeness, it's the innovativeness of the individuals. And that's really, if you look at that Gartner Award, that's really what gets us there at the end of the day, is that innovation of the folks here at Stanford and the many, many just amazing people that we have that uh, developed a truly inspirational and flexible facility. Can you give me an example of one or two things that if I were a patient at Stanford, um, how, how would I know that I was in such a sophisticated environment? What, what, uh, what might I feel that I did, wouldn't have felt before or what might I not have to feel that I would have felt before? Well, let me give you one. Actually, that's fairly exciting. So there are 5,000 locator beacons literally within this facility. So through your EMR, through our My Health app, as you are approaching the building, you'll actually get a text. And it'll say, we see that, you know, Mr. Entwistle, you're here for your visit today uh, in X location, or you're here for your surgery, or you're here for X. Would you like directions to? and actually? populating within your app a map that will give you point-by-point, turn-by-turn directions uh, to get to where you need to be. At the same time, it will say, would you like to check in? And in fact, you can go through that process of doing some of the work that it seems like you duplicate every time you come into a front desk of a hospital. And so what we try to do is say, how do we create an experience for the consumer that's going to be different? And using the technology that we use on an everyday basis uh, in our lives, uh, in outside of the healthcare world, how do we make sure that this actually gets used internally? That's just one that I think was fairly exciting and certainly patients have resonated well with. You know, another aspect is just the 
technology that we've implemented within the hospital. We all use text every day. It's an opportunity for us to easily communicate with individuals. Why shouldn't we do that once we come in uh, to the building? And so one of the things that we implemented was with a product and technology that we partnered with industry on to actually create a texting platform that actually allows our nurses, our doctors to actually have a communication tool outside of what was the traditional pagers that you see. And that's created uh, more of an opportunity, I think, for folks to connect because, you know, it's hard and actually the technology allows you to be able to actually know who's on call, or know who the, the resident is uh, in the case that uh, you should be connecting with. So uh, those are a couple just examples of neat things that I think uh, have created a better consumer experience or a better experience for our employees. That's fascinating. Uh, it, you know, it, it, as you describe that, uh, that tracking system and, and the, the uh, communication with the patient as they approach the facility, uh, it brings us to the ambulatory environment. And you'll recall uh, in our research uh, about a year ago, we identified roughly one in three ambulatory encounters being what we called at the time reconnaissance visits. Uh, they were they were encounters that were primarily for the gathering of information rather than the actual rendering of care. And now with the pandemic upon us, we've seen the typical health system now running at around 25% of its ambulatory encounters being virtual. Do you think that that's uh, related to that, to that reconnaissance nature of those, uh, of, those, uh, of those visits? And where do you think we're headed with virtual care? Well, I have to tell you, Tom, that's one of the exciting areas that I think we've probably yet to explore. And, you know, I would even start with a little bit, you know, you think about, you know, and I'll, I'll put on my hospital CEO hat. What are we measured by? I mean, what is it typical? I mean, typically you, you look at our metrics and you'll hear CEOs get around the table at the meetings and, you know, how many beds do you have? <laughs> you know, and it's kind of an all average, well, I have 500, 600,000, I have a thousand, yep. you know, yep. we, we see that. One of the things that we even equated our outpatient visits to are an adjusted patient day. So we're using that same metric. What I think we are, we've got to start thinking through in the way that we're viewing technology is virtual is really where we're going to migrate through. And how do we make sure that that's something that we see that we're actually hardwiring into what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis? And it's too easy to go back. You know, it's, well, I can get patients in clinics. I can keep my ancillaries up. I can get the heads in beds because that's what I'm measured by. But I think we've got to rethink that. For us, we saw as an industry that we could move quickly, that we could turn on a dime. I think about myself and my own organization, and I had 2% of my visits before this pandemic hit being virtual. During the height of the pandemic, I had 70%. I had 96% of my providers that now had provided a virtual visit. That was unheard of. We were trying our best to try to encourage and move this along in such a way that it was tough. It was like, you know, Hurting cats, for lack of a better word, and uh, folks didn't want to use the technology. Now I have almost 90% of all of my pathology being done digitally. I mean, we were implementing this technology at a slow roll. Now 
all the pathologists want to be able to use virtual health and use the digital slides. So I think this is something that's with us. The question is, is how do we enable it? And, you know, we have, uh, even despite our peak of 70%, we're averaging about 33% now being on the ambulatory side. And so I think that's one of the perspectives. If you think about what is that excess or reconnaissance, I think coming back to that question is to say, what we don't know is how much of that reconnaissance actually could be done without making the patient come find a parking place, without making them travel for two hours, without making them find a, you know, <laughs> uh, all of the things that make it problematic sometimes uh, to, to come visit us. And if that's the case, can we do those perspectives uh, on a front end? I might also, you know, turning a little bit of the question that you answer more towards saying, do they really need to come in for the visit? Do they need to have the virtual visit? Or can we enable their primary care physician or their specialist actually with an e-consult with our subspecialist to prevent the visit at all uh, or allow the local provider to be able to give the care that they need in that community? Now, we all get concerned about that because all, all of a sudden it starts to uh, disrupt our revenue streams, which uh, certainly is an important aspect of that. But I think there's more that we can do to actually create a better patient experience and actually allow uh, the care to be closer to home in many cases. So there are a lot in this question, and I think a lot of exciting things going on, but I, I think it's something that we've got to keep our eye on. It sounds like you... Uh, are of the of a similar mind uh, as as me, and we're on the we're at the beginning of something here, and uh, it's it's likely to get bigger rather than smaller. I would agree, and you know, I guess I would even ask you the question, Tom. Is uh, and maybe it's a question I asked myself recently because I had a healthcare experience that was actually virtual. I didn't have to go in. I you know, and here I work at a hospital and have all the clinics right next to me, and the fact that I could do it from my office. Wouldn't you rather have an opportunity to be able to have a digital visit if you could and have the same level? Uh, or would you rather go through the experiences? So I do think it's something we got to keep our eye on. It's something that I think that our patients, now that they've had a taste of it, actually are, quite frankly, probably going to more demand that uh, we provide this level of service if we have the opportunity to do it. And keep the same level and quality of care, because that, of course, is at the end of the day going to be our overarching uh, monarch to say, how do we make sure that we provide the care? But can we think in different platforms of doing that? So, yeah, I do think it's with us to stay. You know, you've always been a, a what I would what I would characterize as a, an operationally engaged chief executive, you know, from your from your days at Utah. Um, I, I know from uh, having been associated with you that that the quality focus at the University of Utah started with you. You you walked it. You you made it be um, a part of the organization's culture. Um, back all the way to your days as chief operating officer at the University of Wisconsin, you you've always had um, kind of a hands-on uh, grasp of of quality. If I were to ask you, <clears throat> not from Stanford's perspective. But from America's perspective, if, if you could change a few things about the way that we deliver health care that patients would immediately appreciate, what would you change about the way that health care is, is, is delivered in the country, not at Stanford? I don't want to put Stanford on the spot, 
But from the from the country's perspective, what what couple of things would you do differently that would make patients uh, appreciate it? All right, Tom. I like those hard probing questions. Uh, <laughs> as I look at that, I appreciate that you started with quality, and at the end of the day, the overarching delivery of what we provide, it is about the patient. It is about what is that patient expectations when they walk in the door. Uh, you know, they have a hard time probably in many cases delineating what is quality, but they do have a trust uh, and a faith in us when they come in. And that's what I always want to make sure that we're living up to, that the numbers we see from a provider standpoint are there. Now, what would we change? What would we do differently? I have to say, going back to the technology side, part of the reason that I came to Stanford, and you know, there's so many great things about Utah that was wonderful to be there, but I have to say the marriage of the technology to the care environment, to the fact that we're sitting right here in Silicon Valley, I thought there were so many opportunities to be able to really create a different experience, a different use of the way that we do things. And, you know, let me just give you one quick example. One of the things that we've actually been doing here uh, as part of COVID is actually developing with wearables, uh, partnering not only with Apple and the Apple Watch, but Fitbit and actually tracking uh, through algorithms, basically the ability to monitor whether an individual will actually catch COVID earlier. And we've seen that by the way that we've developed the algorithms of watching the movements of where they've been and tracking that, we've actually been able to, on a median, predict up to four days earlier whether a patient will get COVID or not. I mean, think about the application of that technology. So if I was going to say that I was going to change something, it's how do we use that technology in a real world way to benefit the quality of care the treatment of care of patients that we see. And that's where I think some of the exciting pieces are. Uh, we've gone by the adage that if you don't have to come in the hospital, if you don't have to have something done to you, uh, then why should you have to even come in? Uh, why not use the technology to enable uh, the care platform for our individual providers? And so I would hope that one of the things that we would change is actually creating the use of technology and with that, the data that enables the decisions that we make in a very real time and a better way. You know, we all talk about AI and it's kind of a very popular word, but are you really applying that technology to make the care experience better, to make it safer, to make it more oriented toward the precision health of that patient, uh, as opposed to looking at some of the ways that we've done things in the past and using that? And so that to me would be something uh, that I would actually hope that we as an industry are moving in two. And so while not at the, you know, groundbreaking or fundamentally pivoting the direction healthcare is heading, I do think there's a bit of a slow, steady role that actually we can use technology to change our the way we do things. And then with that, I hope at the end of the day also, and coming back to what you started the question with, I hope that we create a consumer-oriented experience that's different than what we had before. How do we partner with our patients? How do we truly create that exceptional patient experience, knowing that not in every case we're not going to be able to cure it? But can we lessen the pain? Can we lessen uh, the suffering that they go through, but do it in such a way that we've created a good experience for them at the same time? And I think oftentimes that consumer side of things 
is devoid from what we do and being able to create that soft touch, that experience that actually uh, makes it overall feel as though they did get quality care, even though we may say, you know, from the numbers, it's quality, but creating that. And I do think there's still a long way to go uh, in our sector to be able to do that. You know, you just raised something that that I find fascinating and, and, um, let me go. Let me take you back to your to your thought of uh, of using um, artificial intelligence or technology to anticipate. And the example that you used was to uh, to anticipate the likelihood of a COVID infection. But let's let me take you to another application because I think uh, I, I think you'll be interested in this, and I, I'm fascinated by your perspective. I've often thought. That, that an untapped use of um, big data and artificial intelligence, if you want to call it that, uh, is, is the, uh, the prediction or the anticipation of a decompensation in a chronically ill patient and not taking into effect or into consideration just uh, clinical markers like ejection fractions, but social determinants of health and other things that are going on in their daily life. And I wonder if we don't uh, if if we might not find ourselves at some point in the not too distant future at a time where we can gather a lot of information about what's going on in a patient's daily existence that tr- that could contribute to the probability of them decompensating and get out ahead of some of those episodes of chronic and complex care. What what do you think about that? Well, Tom, I'm going to start that question by, I think you've thought through that. I've certainly got a perspective on that. I'd love your thoughts on that. You've seen the data. You've seen where we're headed. You've seen what we've developed in technologies and some of that. Yep. How I, do you think we've progressed in that? Well, I think, I think we, haven't, uh, we haven't turned our attention outside of the medical record enough yet. I think I think there's probably there there are algorithms being being developed that say when the lab value is greater than or equal to X you do this and and when the diagnosis is this here's the care plan. What I think uh, what I think we haven't had the the brilliant people that are looking at this uh, branch out enough to do is to say what is it about M- Mary Smith. The fact that she lives alone, her kids are 2,000 miles away, she doesn't have a husband anymore, uh, and you know what, what is it about her daily existence that puts her at a higher risk of having her medical condition decompensate? And, and is there something that we could do as a health system to intervene on her behalf earlier or to put her on a watch list? So that someone is, so that your texting uh, uh, technology is is keeping a better tab on her. I think I think we're doing a lot of work within the medical record. I think we we maybe could do a little more work on the social side of things. The fact that you are in the middle of at the epicenter of technology, I wonder if if you and and the guys uh, in Silicon Valley might be able to ratchet that up a bit. You know, Tom, I have to say I agree with you. And in fact, what I would also say is think about the technology we have available to us. I mean, if you can track a package, if you can see where that is across the country uh, and be able to see some of the use of that technology, why can't we use that in healthcare? Why can't we track what 
temperature, what the diagnosis, what the different perspective, you know, the technology that we're using to predict COVID, you know, that's just, I think, a toe in the water and what can be developed. And we have such an opportunity to use the data that we're collecting, but also uses the devices that we have to be able to apply those in different ways. And I just don't think we've set it up that way. I think we we're getting there, but I think it's a bit, uh, we have a little bit of, I think, a disconnect with technology companies. But guys, I can tell you here in Silicon Valley, healthcare and their application of the technology and healthcare for these companies is just through the roof. I mean, they want to be able to apply. However, if you think about applying that technology back to us, you get into a, a system that, you know, uh, I'll have a, you know, a meeting and meet with a tech company and I'll say, great, I'll put together a committee and I'll be back to you in 30 days. They're wanting to have a product in 30 days. And so <laughs> how do we how do we create a different perspective on the way that we move, the way the tech industry moves to actually apply their technology? And it's being applied in ways that I think in some cases aren't as helpful as if we really could partner between the healthcare organizations in the tech industry. And that's the piece I think, which certainly here we're trying to bridge the gap on. Using the technology in a predictive way, and I'll give you one example that we're actually uh, standing up a, a product here, is actually something that allows us to look at millions of records. We take the diagnosis of a patient, we look at what their genetics is, we look at what they've been treated with, we look at where their key indicators are, and then we apply that to literally records from millions of other patients to say, from this diagnosis, where we think things are going, how does that compare with what we've seen in other patients across huge data sets? And in many cases, those treatments and what we see that would have been predicted to be necessary change in over 50% of the cases by just applying that application of the data. Those are the type of things that we've got to bring real-world solutions to. Why aren't those built into our electronic medical records? Why doesn't our technology do that for us automatically so that we're enabling our providers um, with that? So, I mean, I think that's that marriage of technology and marriage of data with the application of the care pathways and the way that we treat precision's precision health. To me, that's the definition of it, that we're just, uh, we, we were, we're starting it, but there's so much work yet that we still have to do. I, I think you're you're spot on. I you know th the most experienced physician in the world can't can't look across a million people's experiences to know what probabilities look like. And 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 I well, think they can't read all the material coming out. Yeah, I mean, think about all the periodicals. I love that comment. You're right. They can't. <laughs> You know, um, it, it's interesting. Something happened in my house uh, two days ago that I think uh, the, your colleagues in in industry could turn into an application for healthcare. Sandy told me the other day she was uh, online ordering some groceries, and uh, she she was dumbfounded when the grocery order actually added brown sugar, and it and there was a note that said. Uh, Alexa heard you say that you're out of brown sugar. <laughs> now, if if Alexa knows that she's out of brown sugar, maybe Alexa could figure out that her rheumatoid arthritis was acting up somehow, and uh, and that somebody should take a look at it. I, I think there. I, I I'm just fascinated by by what we could do uh, if we if if we got really really creative. 
Well, Tom, apply that. So think about if that same technology overheard that same discussion that you had with Sandy or that I had with Donna that's saying, oh, you know, I don't feel well today. Oh, I'm not really hungry. Oh, you know, I haven't, you know, slept well. Yep. How could we use that technology to be predictive to say, hey, uh, Alexa, let's set up an appointment with your primary care physician or better yet, we reached out to them in a very proactive way. Um, you know, I think sometimes people get nervous about that much intrusion to their life, but right. if we could use that in such a way that actually would help us prevent things that actually might prevent that heart attack, might get them in ahead of time. So, I think yeah. That's right. so you know, we worry about the Orwellian aspect of it, but if if I'm a if I'm a a chronically ill patient, and I'm living alone and I'm frightened, right? And if I, and if I sign up for it, in other words, it's not it's not intruding on me. I invited it. Um, you know, if if my doctor said, you know, this would help us if it's okay with you, and I said yes, it's okay with me, then then we're not we're, it's not Orwellian. You know, it's additive. So I I think I, I think there are things that that we're just on the cusp of, of what could really be crazy exciting. You know, we're using technology now in our ICUs that actually allow us to look at patients' facial recognition patterns, their eye movements, and be predictive on pain. I was in a meeting the other day and one of my colleagues was sharing with me that they have, you know, a 90-year-old grandma that's living alone. The husband just passed away. And so they've literally set up a camera with grandma when she's sitting in the room in the front of the uh, the house during the day just to keep an, a tabs on her. And they've got a little microphone there. Imagine if you could start to use that technology from the camera that we're using the ICU to be predictive in the healthcare that's provided. There's so much uh, there that I think uh, uh, just, we haven't tapped. I'm with you. David, this conversation has been just terrific. And I wonder if uh, if we might impose on you to spend just a little bit more time with us uh, on, a, on a second uh, iteration of, of, of the series. And if it's okay with you, uh, maybe ask you to, to stop back and, and wrap another uh, little bit of conversation. Tom, I always value my time with you. I'd love to come back. And thanks to everyone for spending some time with us on this first of our series of conversations that we call Crosswinds. We'll be back with David Entwistle and the rest of our conversation in the very near future. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then. <laughs>